I'm Jeff Saperstein, co-author with Hunter Hastings of the book, The Interconnected Individual, Seizing Opportunity in the Era of AI, Platforms, Apps, and Global Exchanges. As an interconnected individual, you'll want to know how cutting-edge thinking can help you design, implement, manage, and enjoy your own individual economy. Today, we're talking with Margarita Cuis, behavioral technologies expert who is a behavior designer researcher in DJ Fogg's Behavior Design Lab and co-director of the Peace Innovation Lab, both at Stanford University. The Behavior Design Lab creates insight into how computing products from websites to mobile phone software can be designed to change what people do. So Margarita is engaged as a global consultant with using technologies to increase pro-social behavior. Margarita also has had multiple careers as an engineer, venture capitalist, and startup expert. She's a great model for how to navigate a career to build an expertise and interest in service to the common good. She has also been a volunteer leader for women's and Latino causes, among many other good works. She can use her mastery of subject areas and plug into different roles, organizations, and regions to achieve both her autonomy and personal purpose. We'll discuss Margarita's approach to how technology can be utilized to address wicked problems, such as global and domestic home violence, and her approach to career navigation in a global community. Margarita is a great mentor and example of how, with curiosity and continuous learning to engage in a meaningful career, you can pivot and satisfy your own work experience. So let's begin. Hello, Margarita. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Great. Okay, so uh, please briefly talk about your approach to using technologies to achieve behavior modification for social good. Okay, so um, let me back up a little bit. Um, you know, when um, I have to tell you how I got here briefly, and you know, I've had a background in entrepreneurship and venture capital and so on, and it's been interesting to sit at different seats at this entrepreneurial table. And you know, you have to come up with the idea, you have to develop it, you have to get it to market. Um, and it was interesting about 10 years ago, I hit a wall where you know, we did all these things right, we checked all the boxes. And yet nothing happened. You know, you would bring something to market and it would just fall flat. And I go, what? What's going on here? And I was struggling to find the vocabulary and, and concepts to understand what was happening. And then I had the opportunity to join BJ Fogg's lab. And I was invited in. Uh, uh, someone, a member of his lab uh, heard that I was leaving a, this innovation lab that I was running and said, well, why don't you come and hang out here? And it was a revelation because it was the missing step in terms of the success of a lot of businesses, products, and services, which is if you don't get the psychology right, um, you won't get adoption, you won't get usage. And so it started this decade-long journey of understanding and actually fit into a, a lifelong curiosity about what makes people tick, you know, what moves people to take action and uh, working with BJ Fogg, getting into this emerging field of behavior design and having a very systematic engineering-like approach to designing behavior that was testable, replicatable, measurable, and scalable. And that has been a very uh, powerful skill set uh, for me to acquire in, in this last decade. 
and and Jeff, you know, if I asked you, you know, how many apps do you have on your phone? Um, you would probably say that you have several. And of those apps, how many have you downloaded and then never opened? Right. <laughs> probably or, a lot. Right. Or you or you open them once. Yeah. Right. And then you never use them again. And we all have a junk drawer or a garage cluttered with technologies, gadgets, things that we bought that we never used. And so that to me was, you know, in some ways, if you want to have impact, you know, whether it's social impact or political impact or an environmental impact or something, you need to move people to take action, right? And it's hard enough to get them to take action once, much less to do it in, in, in a repeated way, in a way that becomes a habit or a routine or a ritual. Um, there's a lot of failure in that. And yet when we look at uh, business objectives or political objectives or environmental ob objectives, um, it requires the consistent effort, behavioral effort of people in order to realize those goals. And so uh, my work has really been centered around understanding that, that dynamic, how to design it, and, and, and how to empower practitioners so that they can um, help people become better versions of themselves, really. So ambitious. It sounds, and correct me if I'm not interpreting you correctly, you want to understand human psychology and human behavior and human motivation first and then apply the technology rather than start with the technology and just seek solutions for what you've developed as a technology platform. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, technology is the hammer where everything's the nail, right? Right, right. And, and, and we see that quite a bit, hence a lot of um, startup failures because people say, I have this brilliant technology. For instance, um, augmented reality. You know, I was reading in uh, the newspaper this morning that um, although Apple has had this AR feature in their new phones since the iPhone X, it has been very slow to get traction among consumers because they're going like, well, that's interesting, but what do I do with it? Yeah. How, how does this help me in my daily life? How does this help me in the things that I care about, right? And in Silicon Valley, we tend to be so tech-centric that we forget um, that we all filter all these technologies and gadgets in terms of ultimately um, the, the real life utility that they have every day, right? Right, right. That's a great insight. Well, you know, Margarita, you've had so many professional and nonprofit roles as, as a leader um, and as an innovator. Uh, how do you think about also being a global person in both professional and nonprofit worlds? And by global person, I mean, you've worked in Europe, you've worked in Africa, you've worked all over the world in so many fields. Um, how do you think about navigating your own career uh, in both as a professional and as a, lay, uh, as a volunteer leader and as a global person, um, comfortable, as I said, in so many fields and global regions? You know, as a child, um, one of the um, areas of the library that I needed, to, that I loved to hang out, and I had the Dewey Decimal System by heart 
back then was I loved to hang out in the part of the library that was about anthropology and culture. Mm. So, you know, and ancient civilizations and what were the Mayas doing? And, and, and so it was a combination of archeology. span So the, the physical um, structures of societies, right? Cities and, and, and civilizations, but also the, the cultural aspects of it. And what I find traveling around the world doing my work and of course and I have to say by the way that this didn't come until later in my life I spent the first 25 years of my career going nowhere I mean I just it was either working in Palo Alto or San Francisco that was you know as far as I went geographically and then in the last six years it's just exploded going to northern Europe to Uganda um, Argentina and so on and what's been interesting is putting that 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 passion and that interest in anthropology in uh real life because now i'm uh, this i feel like i'm on this uh continuing study of of all these different cultures and all these different mindsets and learning dutch business culture versus scandinavian business culture versus um how it operates in in sub-saharan africa and it it's an interesting cognitive challenge, right? Because yeah. you realize how fixed you are in your identity. When I went to India and I was doing work there, I didn't really think of myself as a Western person until I went to India, right? And I went like, whoa, I'm really, I really come from this Western culture, this Christian culture, although I'm not particularly religious. Um, but I could see the contrast in terms of uh, worldview, mindset, everything. And that was an interesting thing to, um, to see in myself, right? Because, right. you, you know, it could, when you're among people who are just like you, you don't really think about your identity or um, cultural mindsets that you've inherited that are implicit until you go someplace else. Mm. Well, you know, you, if, I, if I heard you correctly, you started with an interest in cultures and people and your anthropology uh, interest as a kid. And it wasn't until much later in your career that that kind of blossomed. The seeds were there. And then when the opportunity came, it blossomed. And I presume now in navigating your career moving forward, that that part of your life of, of being in different cultures, of being with different kinds of people in different fields, uh, is part of what fulfills you. It's interesting because I definitely have a beginner's mind to it. And, uh, and so when, when, for instance, in, in the Peace Innovation Lab, we, we do a lot of work about how to cross difference boundaries, right? right? And a difference boundary could be religion, it could be gender, it could be nationality, ethnicity, what have you. And um, there is um, a body of research that shows that diverse teams are more creative right. and they make better products and services and um, more profitable companies, right? So diversity is a good thing. However, it comes with a cost, right? There's no free ride. And part of it is this constant um, management of those differences and how do you transform a difference that could be a point of conflict and negative friction to one of opportunity and discovery. 
And so I say this and, and it sounds very um, simple, you know, the words on paper, you go like, oh, okay, sure. I get that. But then living it is something else altogether. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And well, um, go ahead. I, I didn't want to interrupt you. Go ahead. So, so diversity is work. It's real work. It's emotional work. It's cognitive work. It's always um, checking in with yourself and checking in with the story in your head, mm. right? And saying, okay, I have this story in my head, but how does that fit with the other person's story in their head? And, and is there an objective reality? Um, and so that's been a very interesting uh, path to walk. So, uh, so we have this, this theory of change of how, how things could be better at, at bridging difference boundaries. And then we get to live it every day. And, and we know that it's not an easy one. However, it is worth the effort. Well, Margarita, given the fact that for the first 25 years of your career, you were in the Bay Area in working with people who you were understood the mindset, understood the culture, et cetera, et cetera. Now you've had six years of being global with looking at behavior technologies. When you come back to the Valley, you come back to the Bay Area, you come back to those communities that you were so comfortable with. Do you now have a different mindset of how you're looking at us? When I say us, I mean the Bay Area mindset relative to the world, whereas before you were in the mindset, kind of the fish in the water that actually got to see what water looks like and then goes, goes back in and say, hey, it, it's not all water <laughs> out there. I think what, what I do come back with is a genuine appreciation for the culture here. And I'm a lifelong Californian. And so the one of the things that I, I do when I'm dealing with people who are outside of the United, who are coming from outside of the United States is talk about the history of California and how it has always been a destination for people who wanted to reinvent themselves. You know, uh, especially when you look at say the history of the gold rush and um, people from literally all over the world landed in California within a five-year period. Uh, different cultures, different languages, different everything. And they had to figure out a way to work together, right? Yep. And that ability to, to come together, compromise, cooperate, compete, collaborate, all at the same time, is something that is very deep in California's cultural DNA. And so we are very open to ideas from the outside, right? We have an outward orientation. Yes. Um, we have this ability to integrate people who are different from us because we were the other as well, right? Um, there aren't that many native Californians. Most people come from somewhere else. And, and so we all have a similar backstory, you know, if you, if you say what the narrative is, well, I came to California because of school and I came because of a career opportunity, but it was really fundamentally about creating something new, a new persona, a new identity, a new career, a new technology, a new something. And it's that openness to the new that makes California stand apart from the rest of the world. 
And when I work with uh, people, um, communities in other parts of the world that want to be more innovative, that's the big stumbling block is the lack of outward orientation, um, the discomfort with interacting with people who are different. And uh, every time I come back here, I can really appreciate it at a level that I didn't before. I mean, I knew it was there, right? And I took it for granted. And now I, I, now I understand how rare that is and how special. Well, you've, art- you've articulated that beautifully. I certainly have felt that as many of us who came here, even from other parts of the United States, and felt exactly what you're talking about at a very uh, visceral level. It's just in the air. Let me move on to another topic. Um, you are in great demand, and, and people may not know that you're listed as one of the top 50 women in the Valley, and you've had all kinds of awards, and, and they can certainly check that out on your website. But uh, you're continually asked to be involved on projects, both as a volunteer and as a professional. How do you choose your professional, let alone relationships with individuals, right? Uh, people who want to just get to know you and want to be friends with you. So how do you choose professional relationships and projects? Do you have certain criteria that you now apply that you might not have done earlier in your career? Absolutely. I do find that I have more nuanced filters about the projects that I engage in. Um, We get a lot of inquiries from people wanting to do collaborations with us and so on. And, um, you know, in some ways, what I'm doing with the Peace Innovation Lab is my last rodeo, right? It is the <laughs> to my career. Um, once you get to a certain middle age, you look at it and you go, wow, I have more years behind me than in front of me. And so I have to make the time count. Yeah. And so what I'm looking for are interactions and uh, collaborations that have the most impact on the thing I care about. And what I did in the past is I tended to be more of a supporting actor in someone else's movie. Yes. And um, because a part of it is, you know, as a woman and as a girl, I'm conditioned to be helpful, right? Yeah. I'm supposed to be helpful. So if someone asks me to help, then the default answer is yes. And, and I've done a lot of supporting of other people's missions. And now I find myself to be more inwardly focused and saying, no, it needs to be consistent with the impact that I'm trying to make in the world. And, and if it, if it isn't, if it doesn't put more wood behind my arrow, I will say no. And that's a hard thing for me to do. And and I kind of choke on the word no, Um, Mm -hmm. but I have to do that. Um, Because I, I care very much in terms of the work that we're doing getting it disseminated in the world and create a a movement around that we've we've spent a decade on in terms of 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 doing this peace innovation work so i now interact with people from the un or at ministerial levels in government Um, i'm trying to reach the the highest leverage people that i can so that i can have the impact that i need to have in the swiftest amount of time and that's really the 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 filter that I have right now. And, and so that's on one end. And then on the other end is working with the next generation and bringing them up. So that way they can uh, take the baton when, when uh, my co-director and I are ready to pass it. 
Well, may it be many years before you're ready to pass it, Marguerite, and I know you're a great mentor because you and I have shared opportunities to mentor people and, and uh, you are terrific at it. And so even there, you have to choose who do you wish to mentor or who do you wish to pass that baton to? So obviously that selectivity is in motion. Well, what absolutely. I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I was, I was um, talking to a parent with a, a rising senior and they were doing the college tour here at Stanford. And I was sharing the kinds of students that I love to work with, right? Um, and I said, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but I prefer to take the students who weren't the valedictorians, right? I, I actually like the students who had to struggle a little bit, yes. who actually have perseverance, who say like, okay, this isn't going to come naturally to me. And so I know I just have to grind. I just have to work at it. Those have been my favorite students because I can give them anything and they're not intimidated by it because they go, I already know it's going to take work. Right. And so they just do the work. Um, right. If you have students where things come too easily for them, they lose interest. They go, oh, I didn't want to do it. Right. Yeah. And you're like, wait, yeah. wait, this is important. I need you to grind on this. And they yeah. kind of like drift away. So, so give me the grinders. Um, those, those students I love. Um, I have, um, I've mentored some who've gone all the way to PhD level, you know, over the years, over the last eight years. And it's been, it's been lovely to see someone who you knew as a sophomore junior in college in the East coast and then go and get it masters and then having, getting their PhD at Stanford. Right. And just right. following that relationship. I'm sure that there are many people who will attribute a great deal of their success and uh, raising their horizons to their to your influence on them. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, but you know, you've raised something about challenges of not wanting to say no because you're a woman, and I, your ethnic background is both Latina and American Indian, and so. If you are comfortable, can you speak about some of the challenges that women and minorities may have and being leaders and being independent and being global and interacting with people all over the world as an authority as you are and, and the struggle or to, to achieve that and maybe some insight on those challenges and ways that you've um, either achieved it or are still working on it? Right. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the 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 implicit bias is there, you know, the struggle is real. Um, I remember earlier in my career, I didn't go by my first name. I went by my initials yeah. because I wanted to disguise my gender. Right. And of course, when I actually showed up, it became very obvious that I was a woman. Um, but I didn't want to um, advertise that. Right. I tried very hard to obscure that. Um, and that seemed like a valid strategy in my 20s. And I look back on that and I realize that I was kidding myself. Um, there are any number of lunches that I had with male mentors who told me that I had a great resume, wonderful experience, great drive, et cetera, et cetera. But I would never be successful in that company because of my gender. But perhaps my daughter might be. So those things really did happen. I think what was helpful was uh, certainly the first 15 years of my career, I was somewhat oblivious to it. 
you know, I was interested in what, in what I was interested in and I just was, went full out for it. And, um, if my gender hindered me, I, I almost imagine that I was like gender autistic, you know, I really, <laughs> it didn't, it didn't come to mind until it started until, until I started getting hammered on it. And then I went through this period where I became extremely self-conscious about gender and, and kind of hid, kind of held back. And now I'm popping out the other side. And maybe it's that, that middle-aged um, period that women get where, you know, they just, they just don't care anymore. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, I, I'm a woman. Do you have a problem with it? Um, and so I'm kind of I'm coming, coming full circle. And say like I just need to do what I need to do because I have limited time, and um, you know it's kind of lead follower get out of the way right. And but I think that it's it's perfectly natural to go through those ups and downs as you navigate that. I think that for women and people of color, the path actually is to invent your own path to create your own career rather than saying. I'm going to do the traditional model of trying to move up the pyramid. And as we know now, in terms of the future of work, it's really more of a portfolio approach yes. where you're going to have multiple projects and develop things on multiple fronts. Um, when I was doing that, when I was younger, people said, you're not focused, right? And now people say like, ah, I see you're diversifying your bets. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. So it's not like I was going to work at IBM for 30 years. Nobody does that anymore. I mean, certainly not in the United States. That's still the case, yeah. in Europe, but not here. And yeah. so um, part of it is, is staying relevant, you know, for it doesn't matter who you are. How do you stay relevant? How do you stay um, abreast of what's coming up that's new? Because certainly in Silicon Valley, we value what's new. We don't value someone with 20 years of coding experience. We want someone who has six months of blockchain experience because we need what's on the bleeding edge, right? Yeah. The fact yeah. that you did, you, you're, you know, I did client server architecture in the nineties. Nobody cares about that it has zero market value, right? <laughs> Zip. So I feel like, you know, we're, we're produce at the grocery store and we all have an expiration date. So you, you need to stay current. Uh, whether you're a man, woman, person of color, whatever. Um, and then the other thing that I think is going to become more and more salient in the workplace is this issue of diversity, not so much in terms of headcount of do I have brown, beige, and white, but rather of lived experience. Because what we find in our work is one of the ways you de-risk innovation and, and de-risk running your business is having multiple lived experiences in your team, right? Where you might have someone who say like, you know, so let's say let's, let's not to beat on Facebook, but let's talk about Facebook for a moment. If there had been people there who had different lived experiences and different educational experiences, they would say, you know, historically, this might not work out so well. This hasn't worked out well in the past. Right. You know, people right. who had a long view, people who had a cultural understanding, people who had um, uh, could, who could understand what it meant to be 
part of a, a population that is at risk and that gets typically targeted, right? You're going to have different radar about things than someone who is 22-year-old white male who hasn't lived a very long life. And so you can't fault them for not having the experience of a 50-year-old, right? It's just where they are at, at that stage of life. They don't know what they don't know. But someone else could say, oh, if we design this product this way, it could be weaponized against this community. Let's not do that. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's where, um, in addition to whatever professional expertise you have, those insights are going to become more and more valuable to the enterprise. Well, Margarita, I know you have been so generous uh, whenever I've asked you to come to San Francisco State and speak to my students who are minorities and or people who are first generation college educated and you have been wonderful in talking about this journey from feeling like you are an imposter to actually feeling like you do belong as a leader as independent as global and there was an expression that you used you fake it until you make it i believe that you, you told my students could you just speak to that briefly in terms of that discomfort? I and mean, somebody could be listening to this who may be uh, coming from India or coming from China and not necessarily an American minority, but may feel that discomfort in entering uh, an American workplace or a workplace that uh, the culture is one that is not familiar. Yeah, the discomfort is a sign that you have an opportunity to learn and grow, mm -hmm. right? So once you hit those edges, those boundaries, and you go like, oh, this doesn't feel so good anymore. It's not easy anymore. That's where you have the opportunity for the most growth. Um, and to be sure, whenever you do something that's outside of your tribe, Right. And I am very, very far away from my tribe and, and my upbringing and my community and so on. It, in some ways, if I think about my 10 year old self and my 15 year old self, this would be unbelievable. Um, there is a risk to it and it, there's a real cost. And that is that you can't, you can't go home again. It's true. Um, so I don't belong in that world. I quasi belong in this world, um, but not entirely either. And so this is one of the things that inhibits people from taking that risk and taking that step is realizing that they will not necessarily be belong to their old tribe anymore. And that is um, an informed decision that you have to make. And a lot of people decide not to, hence, you know, in so many cultures, you have the tall poppy syndrome, right? Um, where they're going like, oh, if, if you deviate from the social norms, we'll, we'll cut you down. That is a very real thing, and it's all over the world. It's not unique to any particular culture. Yes. Um, so you need to brace yourself for that and say, like, okay, yeah, that's going to happen. But what's really interesting is that there's an entire community of people who are just like you that way. And um, I have discovered them, and they're, they, they've left their old culture, and they're now a third culture, right? And those people, um, when you find them, you, there's sort of this radar. You go like, ah, we're, we're, we're very similar, right? And uh, those people are incredibly creative, and they will lift you up. 
I love that phrase that you're the third culture. I like to think of it as the hybrid culture, you know, the, the, the person who comes from a particularity but is able to interact and contribute to the universal. It's kind of wonderful when you meet those people, isn't it? It is. And, you know, the thing is that they are skilled at bridging that chasm between being an outsider and an insider. They go, okay, I'm never going to be an insider to this culture, but I know how to build a bridge and a connection. That's great. Margarita, my last question to you. You, you exemplify continuous learning and developing your own expertise throughout your career. Um, what advice do you have for professional lifelong learning and personal growth to people who are looking at the journey and looking at transition and uh, where is the continuous learning and developing of your own expertise as well as um, personal growth for you? So to me, it's a hybrid. One is just meeting new people, right? Mm -hmm. And, and getting, getting excited about what they do, uh, the serendipitous conversations that come up. And then the other aspect is, again, cultivating this outward orientation and just having a curiosity, deep curiosity about different subjects. Um, when I was at IDEO many years ago in our San Francisco office, we had a wall. I mean, it was like 20 feet long of magazines and it would be magazine covers. You could see the full cover. So the wall would show you magazines that wouldn't be just people magazine and time magazine it would be you know uh obscure interests the people who are into you know different pets and um uh, lifestyles and everything else political magazines everything that you can imagine and we would walk that wall for inspiration right and just to get an interest of what are the headlines of these different niche interests and and just having that always present let you know that there was a whole world of topics and interests out there and part of the genius of IDEO is like imagine that we were um in some ways like product design djs right you know hip-hop masters where we would sample from one genre and combine it with another and i think that in in terms of how you stay fresh you know we should all be djs we should all be sampling music from different from different eras, remixing it and creating new IP out of that. And the way you do that is that you need to constantly get source material, right? So movies, music, museums, travel, all of this informs, um, you know, our intellect and our opportunity to be creative and to add value. That's a beautiful way to end. Um, Margarita, this is wonderful. Um, let me suggest for anyone listening that you should check out Margarita's TEDx San Francisco presentation, um, which you did recently, Margarita, and, and uh, a wonderful presentation on your work, as well as um, linking to your Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn and follow Margarita as she continues her journey. And uh, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff.